the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we are joined by Keith Hirschland. Keith is an Emmy award-winning TV sports producer, author, and was at the airport in Reno the night of the skyjacking. His book, Big Flies, is fictional, as far as we know, but the theory behind it is compelling. Four unsolved heists all committed by the same team. Keith is a very bright and accomplished dude. I had a great time talking to him, and I know you'll enjoy this episode with my good friend, Keith Hirschland. Keith, how did you get into D.B. Cooper? Boy, I guess it would have to be the, the fact that um, I was living in Reno, Nevada, in 1971. Um, had been there for uh, most of my life. Uh, my father and mother started a television station in Reno, the what turned out to be the CBS affiliate. And... I was a 16-year-old kid in, um, almost 16-year-old kid in 1971, that, that Thanksgiving holiday time. And um, my folks, the TV station, obviously when the news came across that, uh, that Mr. Cooper had helped himself to an airplane and was uh, demanding a ransom and, and perpetrating the first skyjacking in in US history um, that the information came across the wires that the plane was uh, scheduled to land for a refueling stop in Reno so um, you know my dad was was uniquely in tune to what was going on at the station especially in the newsroom at the time they had a an old bread truck that they used um, to broadcast various things uh, live from around the Reno area, including high school football games and and news reports, and it had a platform on top of it that allowed the the cameras to be set up there. So they rolled out the bread truck. The news director and the chief engineer and everybody involved rolled out the bread truck and headed over to the Reno International Airport. And uh, my dad. And my mom and my brothers and I jumped in the car and headed that way too um, and watched as the plane landed. And, you know, I don't remember, I, you know, I can see it in my, in, I can see it uh, as I remember it, but, you know, obviously there was no D.B. Cooper on board the plane because he had jumped out. So, you know, D.B. Cooper was, was something that was kind of ingrained in my memory just because of the fact that you know, I was kind of um, at the scene of the crime, so to speak, uh, in Reno at that time in 1971. That's wild. What did you think of it at the time that 
Did you think he would jump out of the plane? I mean, what were you thinking? Yeah, it was it was strange. You know, I can remember friends and I, you know, at the time I kind of thought, well, that's anticlimactic. You know, we're not going to get to see anybody pulled off the plane and get arrested and, you know, dragged off in handcuffs or any of that kind of stuff because there was, you know, he wasn't on the plane. But, um, you know, I think it was pretty, pretty evident shortly thereafter that my friends and I and everybody in the Reno, kind of the Reno area, uh, would latch on to this kind of folk hero status that D.B. Cooper had um, had come upon. Um, and the fact that, you know, we followed the case as best we could as, you know, teenagers, as, you know, the days and weeks and months and eventually years went by when, you know, he was never found. And, you know, this legend sprung up and we always were, you know, kind of tickled that, uh, you know, that our lives played a minor role in in the whole story because of the fact that the plane um, made a stop in Reno. That's really interesting. So how many people were there? Do you remember that at all? Were, was there a dozen? Were there five dozen people? It was probably closer to a dozen than it was a hundred, only because we were... Um, we were privy to the information thanks to, you know, my dad's being, my dad being the owner and general manager of the TV station. So, uh, I, I don't remember a huge gathering. I do remember, um, you know, kind of, we were, we were parked outside, outside the fence area where the, the truck, the, uh, with, the with the reporter and the news director got to go, um, got to go inside and actually out on the tarmac to, to do the broadcasting. Um, you know, that would be, I would have to, being totally honest, that would be kind of a, a murky memory. Um, but it wasn't like there were hundreds of people lined up, you know, to see what was going on. I think we were pretty, pretty lucky. We were one of, the, you know, we were among the fortunate few to be able to be there and, and kind of witness what was going on at the time. Yeah, I'm definitely jealous. <laughs> I was not there for that. Okay. Answer this, Keith. Do you think it's possible that the plane landed there in Reno and D.B. Cooper was hiding in the plane while the police searched it and then got off when everyone walked away? I wouldn't put anything past the guy. I mean, at the time, I don't think that we um, gave that theory much credence, at least the folks that, you know, were, again, there working on behalf of my dad's station covering the covering the story, I mean, I think they were all fairly convinced that there wasn't any place for him to hide on the airplane. But looking back now, you know, decades removed from the night that it actually happened, um, and the fact that, you know, he has gone so long without positively being identified, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put anything past the guy. Um, I, you know, I've, I've listened to a number of your, your podcasts and you've had um, incredible, incredible guests on that, that talk in a much more scientific and a much more, um, you know, kind of fact oriented way about, about the, about the story. And, you know, the fact that they can go through a number of these, you know, suspects and a number of these scenarios and still nobody knows for sure, um, I think is one of the most fascinating um, 
true crime stories in in the world. It's just such an amazing story. I totally agree with you. It's definitely my favorite true crime story, that's for sure. But, I mean, you don't have to be an expert on all the facts on this case. It's like, somehow the more you know about the case, the less sure you are of anything. And then even when you get into it, you don't even know what is a fact and what's not. I mean, like the parachutes, for example, or the money on Tina Barr. I mean, any guess is just as good as quote-unquote expert opinion on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I fact I think the fact that that um, that's the case, that there are so many plausible scenarios, um, some, as you know, better than I do, because, again, you've talked to... You've, you've been digging into this for a lot longer than I had before I started writing Big Flies. But, um, you know, the, the fact that there are so many possibilities just leads one to think about, well, maybe there's one more. Or, you know, maybe it happened like this, but with a little bit of a twist. And, um, you know, it, it just it allows, um, I think, the facts the several facts that are undeniable allow for um, people's imaginations to run rampant, which is, I think, the best, um, in a lot of cases, the best um, nugget for uh, any kind of fiction to grow from, because there is, there is fact, you know, kind of at the bottom of it, but how that, you know, how that tree branches out, um, is up for any kind of interpretation or anybody's imagination, which is why I had a ton of fun um, writing the book because, you know, you couldn't say I'm wrong. (laughs) No, we definitely can't say you're wrong. You're totally right about that. It is perfect fodder for the imagination because D.B. Cooper did happen. That's for sure. But we don't know who it was. We don't really know some of the, the smaller details in it, how it was pulled off, why that kind of thing. Right. So there is a lot of room to fill in those blanks in the story, especially in a creative way. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's why I'm a little surprised. Maybe there has been, I mean, have there been movies made of this, this story? I know there's been documentaries and there've been kind of true crime, you know, reenactments from certain people's point of view and what they think happened. And, but you know, like a full-length feature film, I don't remember one. But you might know better than me. Oh, there's three. Are there? So there is the Pursuit of DB Cooper with Treat Williams and Robert <sighs> Duvall. I love it from 1980 or 82, something like that. It's not very good. <laughs> um, it's basically the movie starts with Cooper jumping out of the airplane. And then Treat Williams just goes on like this drunken cross country run with this gal. And that's the movie. That's the pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Uh, And then there is Without a Paddle with Dak Shepard and Seth Green. It's a comedy comedy. where they're looking for D.B. Cooper's money. And then there is Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper, which (laughs) is, I don't want to call it pornography but it's it's some weird genre of movie where it's just shirtless guys working out really and that's bigfoot versus db cooper if you've got some extra time during your quarantine right. uh, and you feel like checking it out 
Bigfoot versus DB Cooper. It was on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but it's That's not interesting. Very long. But and uh, so nobody really, no screenwriter or no uh, no producer really thought to. It sounds like really thought to ha- have a have a, a serious kind of um, true crime mystery made about it. They've. It sounds like they've kind of used it as a bit of a a jumping off point onto something else. I mean, I, I didn't see the, the, the comedy, but, uh, that seems like maybe it was something that maybe could have happened that, you know, a couple of knuckleheads thought, let's go find all this money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're waiting for you to turn your book, big flies <laughs> into the next feature length. I would film love that. How do we get that done? <laughs> I, I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy. I'm producing a podcast from my basement. I'm not doing it TV. I'm going to have to get some of my actor friends involved. But I think the D.B. Cooper case, it doesn't get the attention it deserves because there hasn't been something like that. I mean, if you look at the Zodiac Killer or Stephen Avery that making a murderer, I mean, those are household names, those cases. Yep. But many people, especially my age, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm doing a podcast about D.B. Cooper. And they're like, who's that? It's like, well, it's actually the most interesting story ever. (laughs) Right? Well, I wonder if it's because there is no and has been no conclusion to the story. So it's, you know, one of those things where um, maybe if he had actually uh, been found or if one of these theories that has cropped up over the course of, you know, the last 40 years um, actually came to be the true story, then I wonder if, you know, somebody would have turned that back around as opposed to having to rely on imagination and, and try and figure out how to tell the story with with truth involved, but at the same time come up with a, a plausible conclusion to, uh, to his life. It, it just amazes me that... It continues to be, you know, thanks to to your efforts and the efforts of some other folks, you know, kind of every every now and again, it just it just pops up as, you know, isn't this an interesting, you know, tidbit or what do you think happened to D.B. Cooper and social media has taken a taken that ball and and run with it quite a bit. Um, You know, I was fascinated when after all those years, you know, the FBI not too long ago finally said we're done. We're out. We can't figure out who this guy was or what happened to him. So we're just going to stop looking. Um, I thought that was an interesting development. Yeah, definitely. I assume they've chased down all their leads. How many more leads are they going to get after 45 years had gone by? Yeah. But you did make a really good point about the reason that there's no movies or documentaries on this is because it is unsolved. You if you were going to make a documentary, what would the documentary be? It would just be your theory. Right. Because you don't know exactly what happened. And if you're going to make a movie, then you are pretty much making everything up because we don't know. Yeah. And I, I find it, and I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I find it fascinating that that some people are so convinced that their take on the D.B. Cooper story is the right one, um, you know. The, the rack straw theory and i mean there are people that you know will go to their graves i'm sure saying i solved this and i had proof and 
you know, this is actually what happened when um, there's no, there's absolutely no way of knowing what really happened because, you know, that there, the guy got away with it, which is, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, the, the true essence of, of a folk hero is that, you know, he didn't get caught. Yeah. And he did it without hurting anyone. Right. And I've heard people say that he did hurt people because Tina and the pilots and all of them, they were terrified. But in 1971, people were more durable. People were tougher. (laughs) You know, Tina said that he was polite after the event. She didn't look like she was terrified. I don't like it when people say that those stewardesses, they were hurt, you know. I think they've been bothered more by people trying to harass them about the case than they ever were bothered by the five hours they spent with D.B. Cooper. Yeah, everything that I've read and everything that I've, you know, heard, um, and, you know, I tried to, you know, make the character in Big Flies, you know, uh, you know, likable, but at the same time, you know, with a with a bit of a twist, you know, a twisted side, just to be able to 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 pull off what he pulled off. And of course, you know, as you know, in Big Flies, I tie um, that character to some other unsolved, you know, real life still unsolved uh, robberies. Um, but you know, my my guy um, started out as you know a pretty normal normal kid, a little bit of a kid that got bullied in school and was going to take out his revenge in certain ways, but never, never, uh, particularly mean or evil or, or violent. Um, and kind of a, kind of a, you know, a con, a bit of a con man, a a bit of a, you know, a, a sneaky thief that, that perpetrates crimes and robberies again, without causing any harm to anybody. But I agree with you that everything that I read and everything that I've heard is, is now, you know, more looking back and assuming that these people were scared or, or mistreated, or it, it seems to me that, um, at the time and, and even years later, it was kind of like they were, they were just part of an adventure that, that happened to them, but with no lasting effects. I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent. It bothers me too, that, that the take that some people's take is that, you know, that, that these folks were mistreated by DB Cooper. Yeah. We're in, it's like there's a victimhood mentality going on today. And I don't think Tina would have considered herself a victim 20 minutes after the hijacking happened. You know, she would have said, I'm not a victim anymore. I'm, plane landed, we're all fine, it's over. I don't think then people looked at it as I'm going to be a victim for the rest of my life because of this. Yeah, and you wonder too if there was some feeling on investigators or law enforcement's part that as as the years went by and, and, the, and the efforts to find him became increasingly futile that some of that was transferred like, well, they must have they must have aided and abetted. They must have helped him. They must have known, you know, they must have gotten something out of this, which, you know, that to your point, it's like, well, you're transferring your thoughts and your feelings onto them. Whereas, you know, none of them 
had anything to do with it. And, you know, they were just as much victims as anybody else. But it was, for lack of a better term, a victimless crime. He just got some money and got away with it. Yeah, and the money he got from the airline and an insurance agency, um, you know, two corporations or two companies that a lot of people aren't going to have sympathy for. He didn't steal the money from a children's hospital and from the Chicago Cubs or anything. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just, you know, it's fascinating. But in your book, Big Flies, you touched on something or go into a theory that a couple other people have done recently, but I think you did a much, much better job than some of the others. And that's connecting unsolved crimes with D.B. Cooper. And what I've seen people do in the past is it's always murder. D.B. Cooper was the Zodiac killer. D.B. Cooper was the Atlanta child killer. D.B. Cooper killed John JonBenet Ramsey. But if you look at the D.B. Cooper crime, it almost seems like he went out of his way to not hurt anyone. And in some of those other cases, the goal is exclusively murder. Like the Zodiac, you know, people had their wallets left on them when they were killed. D.B. Cooper was a thief, but not a murderer. They seem like two completely different crimes. But in your book, the crimes you link together are heists and thefts. And that that seems like the right track to me. Well, I appreciate that. And I mean, I, I it, it never occurred to me to um, connect dots that were more violent than, as you said, simple heists or, or robberies. And, um, you know, my, my, when I, when I started to write the book, it's, it was my first, my first work of fiction. Um, I've since written two, two more. Um, but I had come off of, um, writing my, my memoir, uh, basically the story of my 40 years in, the broadcast sports broadcast television industry. And, you know, I, I started writing that book because my, my parents passed away and, and it was started out to be kind of a journal, uh, telling stories about my life in television that I could leave for my kids because, uh, my wife and I were going through my parents stuff and found a whole bunch of memorabilia about the, the days that they, you know, started the television station in Reno and, and the awards that my mom and dad had won and that, you know, his, his induction into the Nevada broadcasters hall of fame and, um, just a, you know, a ton of, of great kind of memories. And my, my wife said, you know, don't let this be your kids looking in a box when you're gone and saying, my gosh, we had no idea dad won an Emmy or dad helped start, you know, two sports television networks or, you know, dad knew Tiger Woods or whatever it was. She said, start writing your stories down and in a journal so that when they, you know, when you're gone, they have something to look back on and they can hear about, you know, all the things that you did. So um, it was, it didn't start out to be a book, but as I started writing the stories, I realized that, you know, some of them were pretty interesting and a couple of them were entertaining and even a few more of them were actually kind of funny. So I thought, well, why not? you know, turn this into a book. What I didn't know was that it would lead to the end of my career. (laughs) The folks who uh, employed me at the Golf Channel weren't real thrilled with what I had written. So I kind of had to reinvent myself and realize that I enjoyed the process of writing um, so much that I wanted to 
to try my hand at a, at a work of fiction. And I know this is a long-winded story, and I apologize, but um, so, you know, my immediate thought was, well, you know, I kind of wondered what life would be like for a young man to find out that his father was the legendary D.B. Cooper and how that would play out and how he would come about finding that out and, and um, you know, how I could put that down in, in an entertaining and, and in some ways what I still think is, you know, a bit of an informative uh, way because there are, you know, as we mentioned before, there are a bunch of nuggets of fact um, in this story. So I just took those nuggets of fact and then I, you know, that, that seed that included facts and decided what I was going to make my, my fruit tree look like um, in the story. But as I was pondering how to do that, I did, was doing some research and I found at the same, around the same time in about a 10 year span, you know, there were three other, I thought, you know, very interesting, real life, still unsolved robberies. So I thought, well, if D.B. Cooper was smart enough to figure out how to, you know, perpetrate the first skyjacking in in U.S. aviation history, why couldn't he or, you know, he and and a couple other folks as a team figure out or be involved in in these three other heists. And, um, you know, they were all, again, you know, victimless crimes, nonviolent robberies, um, you know, heists, as you said, a bank robbery, uh, you know, uh, stealing some, some artifacts from a Mexican museum. Um, you know, and I thought, well, that would be kind of a fun little twist to, you know, not just say that, that, my character was D.B. Cooper, but his gang also was responsible for, for these other robberies. And, and you know, I mean, I, the question I kept going back to as I was writing this was, why the heck not? Um, but it never, to get back to your original point, <laughs> it never crossed my mind that he would be a murderer or he would set out to kill people or, you know, harm people or, you know, he wasn't that kind of, he wasn't that kind of criminal. He was a, he was a con man. He was a, you know, he was a a pretty smart kid that got some good coaching and, and, uh, you know, had some friends that, that he used in, in ways that helped him saw or perpetrate these crimes and, you know, got away with it, you know, in the end, got away with every one of them. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted him to be likable. I wanted him to be, you know, again, to go back to those original terms we talked about, a bit of a folk hero. It's like, my gosh, um, this guy fooled all kinds of cops and law enforcement officers and got rich doing it and, and you know, ended up living a pretty long and, and prosperous life. And, you know, who, does, who doesn't want to be part of that? Yeah, exactly. And heist is the, the best word for it, because if I'm following a story where someone robs a bank and they they steal a million dollars from the bank and no one is hurt and no one can figure out how it was done, then I'm kind of rooting for the guy. You know, he outsmarted him and it was cool. But if he steals a million dollars and shoots two people and kills them doing it, then you cannot root for him anymore because it, it takes a, a weird dark turn. Right. Or at least I can't root for him anymore. I agree 100%. <laughs> 
So I want to, I made a note here. I want to go back to something. You lost your job at the Golf <laughs> Channel because of what you had written in your book. And I, the book, uh, Cover Me Boys, that book. Yep, that's the book. And yes, that's, you know, it's at the time that was, uh, that was my takeaway. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what actually happened. I was scheduled to, you know, we, 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 uh, published the book in September of 2013. Cover me, boys! I'm going in, um, and I was still scheduled to uh, produce two more golf tournaments for the Golf Channel that year. Um, a week after the book came out, um, the head of production at Golf Channel called me and and basically told me my services were no longer needed. Um, they 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 didn't like um, that I had, you know, kind of told told some stories out of school, and that they were basically terminating my employment. So as I, at the time, you know, I thought it was I didn't I I couldn't really understand it because I felt like what I what I said in the book was I mean everything that I said in the book happened, um, but at the same time I really kind of went out of my way uh, to be respectful, and I didn't tell you know as you can imagine, a number of stories that uh, I could have told that, you know, might have shed a different light on some folks. But so I, you know, I was, I was uh, surprised and my wife, you know, kind of took, pulled me aside and said, you know, you can't be surprised by this because they, nobody likes, you know, to, to hear anything remotely not flattering about themselves and, and especially if you put it in print for the whole world to see. But as I look back on it now, I realized that, you know, I had been there 18 years. Um, I had, I was one of the original folks when the golf channel started in 1994. We went on the air in 1995. I lived through and worked through the transition from when it, be, when it went from really a, you know, a mom and pop shop uh, you know, a brilliant guy from Birmingham, Alabama, along with Arnold Palmer, started the network. Um, it was an amazing place to be. He built it into something that ended up being a billion-dollar industry or enterprise that that uh, the folks at Comcast decided that they wanted to buy, so they did. Um, and it really, you know, I saw that transition that went from you know, kind of a family-run business to a corporate run business and um if if i as i'm honest with myself now i probably you know stayed two or three or maybe even five years longer than i should have it was going in a direction that that was much more corporate and much less um what i thought was much less creative so um but i love doing it i love the people with whom i worked and you know uh i didn't want to leave so i didn't but i you know again i probably should have <laughs> well said keith i think that's also excellent promotion for your book because now <laughs> i cannot wait to read it i want to know this guy lost his job at the golf channel because of this book so that is good promotion for that book well that's there are there are a bunch of stories in it and it really is um you know the first the first part of the book, and actually throughout the book, it's really it it is also a tribute um, a tribute to my mom and dad who 
you know, were huge influences in my life and great people. And, you know, I know every, every son says that I'm guessing about their parents, but, um, it's, it was, it's a tribute to them, but it's also, you know, kind of, I was, I was really, really, really lucky to be in a lot of places at the right time. Um, you know, I was at the beginning stages of, ESPN two, when that went on the air, I was in Bristol, Connecticut at the time. Um, as I said, I was one of the first 40 people that, um, helped start the golf channel. And, you know, I've been around and worked with some of the legends in broadcasting. And, you know, I think what I I tried to do, I never, I never set out for it to be a, you know, a tell all let's burn as many bridges as possible to get people, you know, in trouble or anything like that. I really just wanted to tell some stories about what, you know, kind of the wild, wild west of, of sports broadcasting was when I was growing up and, and going through it. So, um, you know, I hope folks like it and I'm glad you're interested in it, but you know, I, I, I love all the books that I've written, maybe not equally. I mean, maybe cover me boys is, is still my, my favorite child because it was the first one that i wrote and highly personal very (laughs) very but there's a little bit of me i gotta tell you there's a little bit of me in big flies there's a little bit of me in my second book um the flower girl murder um you know i don't think i can you know i i think i've i've told this story a couple of times but i i couldn't write fantasy or science fiction because for me to you know, for my my storyteller to come out, um, I think I have to have, at least so far, I've had to have, you know, some 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 solid, truthful some fact with to which I can jump off from, and I I couldn't do a you know Space Invaders movie because I, I just my mind doesn't work that way. Yeah, and reading Big Flies, I, we talked about it a little bit before the show, but. There were some cars in there and some names in there and some places. And the way you described it, I was like, he's describing something personal that he knew about or saw. Yeah, we had that car. We had the Jeep. Uh, you know, we had, you know, that was a lot of, There's there are a lot of music references in Big Flies. And, you know, that was the music um, that I was listening to growing up. Um, you know, I kind of, you know, I have a, we have a, a, a beautiful Bernie's Mountain Dog. There's a Bernie's Mountain Dog in the book. So again, you know, I and you know the DB Cooper story is is you know kind of near and dear to my heart just because again you know I have just happened to be in Reno, Nevada uh, in November of 1971. So you know there is a personal connection to the DB Cooper story that his sidekick in the book Snowshoe Richards is uh, based on. Uh, a couple of folks that were my my basically my dad's two best friends um so you know again a lot there's there there's there are a lot of you know as as i look at big flies you know that's the only thing i can see is is you know the the personal the personal influences that led me to to be able to write write the book and and you know turn it into something that that maybe others would find entertaining it certainly was entertaining. Did you have to research these unsolved cases more than you knew about them to put them in the book? I mean, the D.B. Cooper jump, there isn't a ton of information 
in the book. I mean, it's only a couple of pages in your book, I believe. So there wasn't a lot, but like the Tucker cross and the, um, what was it? The monkey <laughs> in, in Mexico. Like yep. I didn't even know about those. You know, my, my research and, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, I'm not sure that, that writers are, are supposed to admit this or not, but you know, the research, um, mostly centered around discovering these unsolved robberies and you know the 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 facts that I could that I could glean or that I could come up with from each of them but the beauty of it was and I think the beauty of it remains and I think you can appreciate this is because and again just like DB Cooper because there is no resolution to any of them I could make up whatever I wanted now the problem that I ran into and you know that that elicited you know kind of rewrite after rewrite was making how they pulled off these heists you know somewhat believable i mean you can you know it's it's not like they could just oh well we just stumbled upon this first national bank of chicago and you know we're going to put a bandana over our nose and walk in and and steal a million dollars so i had to you know rack my brain and use my imagination and and talk to some some folks who were very helpful in terms of, you know, could, could this have happened? You know, if could, could they have tunneled, you know, rented a building next to the first national bank of Chicago and figured out a way to tunnel down into the basement where the vault was, you know, you know, establish some kind of inside person, you know, in, you know, in the bank that, could be an accomplice, you know, all those kind of things that, that, uh, took a, took a little bit of, you know, took a, took a lot of hard work and, and talking to, like I said, some of the right kind of people who assured me that, well, it might not have been the way that I would have done it, but technically, yes, that, you know, that could have happened. So, um, and, you know, to your point about, you know, the, the jumping out of the plane being only a few pages or a couple of chapters, that was intentional because I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds of the description because that only would open what I think would open myself up to criticism about it not being realistic. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I mean, with these four cases, because I actually started looking into uh, that Mexico Museum of Anthropology one, because I was just so fascinated by it. And if you were to go over all four of these in detail, uh, there wouldn't be much room left for story in the book. <laughs> so, I mean, I definitely understand why it was done that way. And it's a great book. I really did enjoy it. Oh, I appreciate that. I think I might have done it. I think I might have done it. You know, again, it was my, it was the first one. I wrote it in I guess we published it in 16. So I spent most of uh, the last part of 14 and all of 15 writing it. And, you know, you, you like to think in anything that you do, you grow and you get better and you get more nuanced. So um, as I look at it now, as as much as I like it, you know, I've, I've, especially from friends, gotten some criticism about a couple of things in the book, like, you know, well, geez, you know, that was easy or that you know that that was kind of you know kind of trite but i tried to make it fun i tried to make it interesting i tried to you know inject some humor into it you know it was it's it's not easy writing fiction it's <laughs> you have to you have to you know remember what you said on page 10 so that it makes sense on page 210 
Oh yeah. Yeah, I I can't imagine writing a book. It seems daunting. How is the book business these days? Man, it's hard. Um you know, I I I have been I think I've been fortunate um because it's, I I'm not believe me, I you know, I, I I'm not paying the bills with my writing, but I haven't each book that I've written has made more money than it cost me to write and publish. So I feel very fortunate in terms of, uh, you know, how that, how that has, has panned out. I also, um, we self-published Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In, Big Flies, and The Flower Girl Murder. And, you know, it's, it's a daunting, it's a daunting industry. I mean, self, the self-publishing industry is, is one of the most competitive. And I, I think I read a statistic not too long ago that something like 800,000 books are self-published in the United States or around the world every year. I mean, that, that's a, you know, that's an ocean of, you know, of, of books that you're trying to, that you're trying to make yours stand out in. And it's, it's a really hard thing to do, but I was, extremely lucky because at the end of 2018, a traditional publisher, Beacon Publishing Group, um, found Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In. They reached out to me and said, we'd like to, you know, we we found this book. We thought it was really well done and we'd like to re-release it. So they signed me to a contract and and re-released Cover Me Boys, I'm Going In in 2019. And then my fourth book and my third mystery that we just finished that I finished a little while ago is called Murphy Murphy and the case of serious crisis. And it's a, I think it's a fun little murder, not a murder mystery. It's a fun little mystery that involves a police detective named Murphy Murphy, who has a particular aversion to redundant phrases. And throughout the book, <laughs> there are a hundred, about 150 redundant phrases that I incorporated into writing this mystery and beacon like, as well so um they published it and it's available available for pre-order now and it's uh will be released to the public on may 1st so i've been really really lucky like i said uh a that um i've had throughout the course of my broadcasting career and um made enough friends and acquaintances in that business that enough of those folks bought cover me boys to make it profitable and then uh, I guess I kept those friends because seems like a lot of people also bought Big Flies and Flower Girl Murder. So we'll just keep it going. I'm not, you know, believe me, it's, you know, I'm like number 822,000 on the New York Times bestseller list. But um, luckily for me, I've, I've, uh, it, it hasn't cost me any money yet to uh, write and publish any of my books. So what I'm hearing you say is that you are New York Times bestseller. <laughs> yeah. I would put it on mine. I From now it. on, You're very kind. I want you to refer to me as New York Times bestseller. Yeah, right? <laughs> You're very kind. I am, and I you know, I want to just if you don't mind me going off on a little bit of another tangent, I want to give a just a huge shout out to you. Um I I I love the fact that um, you are so thoughtful in your approach um, to all things um, DB Cooper considered, because you know you 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 allow all the guests that I've listened to on your on your 
podcast to you know to really you know run with their story or their theory and you you do a really good job of of like leading them along without making it you know any kind of well you know i think this so you you know you you're out of your mind because you think that and um i really it's a really it's a talent um for somebody to be able to draw you know um such you know thoughtful kind of takes on um something that has really captured the imagination of of thousands of people so i applaud you for that and you know every every one of your your shows that i listened to were were hugely entertaining and and very informative and um you know i hope you never run out of folks to talk to about it or or conclusions that can be that can come from from this this amazing story of a guy who you know when nobody else was was hijacking airplanes he decided that he was going to be one of the first to to demand some some money from some corporations and decide to strap it to his body and jump out of an airplane with it well thank you keith i appreciate that i've had a really good time doing the show and and i've learned a lot over the 30 episodes i've done so far but uh enough about me let's get back (laughs) to db cooper uh I want to ask you this. There's always this debate on whether or not he had military experience or if he had sport parachuting experience. What are your thoughts? What do you think Cooper's background was? You know, all both of those things make a ton of sense. Um, I, you know, having never uh, jumped out of an airplane, I can't imagine that you you do it without you know, some kind of, some kind of training or some kind of rep repetitions that, that allow you to get over the, you know, over the fear and, and over the uncertainty of what jumping out of an airplane must feel like. Um, I went, you know, I kind of went the, the sport jumping route a little bit in, in how i I felt my guy, got to the point where he would be comfortable enough to jump out of an airplane in the middle of the night. And again, you know, it, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was, it was, the weather was terrible too, right? I mean, it was, it was a, a, a rainy night, I believe. And the guy had to have uh, enough experience in the process to trust it to the point where he knew that, he was going to be able to handle the situation um, after after taking the leap. So, um, I, I you know I didn't I don't I don't I I go more on the kind of the the sport jumping uh, recreational jumper side of things than military. But again, um, it wouldn't nothing would surprise me if all of a sudden you know somebody turned up and said. I am the guy or I knew the guy and, and I was a, you know, I was ex-military. I mean, that wouldn't, would that surprise you? No. And we've discussed on the show before, but people in between the ages of like 35 and 50 in 1971, the vast majority of those dudes had spent time in the military because of World War II and Vietnam. Most men had military experience at that time. That makes sense. 
So that wouldn't surprise me. And the sport parachuting community in 71 was substantially smaller than it is now. Yeah. Good point. So, I mean, just statistically, I guess, but I've talked to people on, on both camps and I'm not really sure. <laughs> Isn't that the beauty <laughs> of the whole story, though? It's like, God, it I'm not really sure. The the whole story. What do you think about his age? The stewardesses said he was in his mid-40s. And when you're talking about committing a crime like this, where the odds that you're going to end up in jail for the rest of your life are way higher than you're going to get away with it. And doing that at 45 is an interesting choice. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, that's where I, I really kind of took a little more poetic license with my character in Big Flies because he's not, you know, that um, Chester David is not that old in, in my, in my writing. Um, I think he's, he's, a little younger than that. So I deviated, you know, from the facts a little bit there just because, you know, you think about um, a guy in his mid forties, I I think that would have, would have um, forced me to take a little bit of a different tack in, in terms of, you know, what his kind of mental state would have been at the time. Cause like you said, you can't, you're not going to assume that things are going to go off without a hitch and you're going to get away with this and, and you're just going to walk away from it and never be discovered, never be found out, never have to, you know, kind of, um, come to terms. I know a lot of people, right. Think that he, you know, he, there's no way he could have survived the jump. So I wanted to make sure that a, he was confident enough, perhaps maybe young enough, fit enough, to survive the jump and then his accomplice in my telling of the story um, is really kind of a guy that um, no knew had like a built-in um, GPS in his his head he could you know he could he could wander through the the forests of or the mountains of northern Nevada and never get lost and he could you know um, so he was helpful in terms of knowing exactly when D.B. Cooper was going to jump out of that airplane. They could kind of find a, a ge- you know, in a geographical, you know, circle where, you know, he was probably going to end up landing or coming down, you know, in the parachute. So this guy, Snowshoe Richards, was able to, you know, go into that that area of the Pacific Northwest and and help his buddy, um, get away with, get away with the crime. So, you know, a lot of that stuff was, um, again, you know, people that are far better versed in the story of D.B. Cooper or have, you know, a much more fact-based, uh, opinion of what may or may not have happened, you know, might read Big Flies and go, well, this is a load of hooey. I mean, there's no way that it could have happened this way, but, you know, all I ask the readers is to, you know, kind of, suspend their disbelief enough to know that there was a guy who called himself D.B. Cooper. There was a guy who called himself D.B. Cooper that strapped $200,000 to his body and jumped out of an airplane. And there was a guy that called himself D.B. Cooper who strapped $200,000 to himself and jumped out of an airplane and got away with it. So allow me the, you know, kind of, again, the the poetic license to take that story from there and, and, and at least 
again, suspend your disbelief enough to think that, well, may, you know, maybe, just maybe it could have, you know, that could have happened. I don't think your book required a lot of suspending of disbelief or anything like that. I, I mean, I, what I'm curious about is what do you think that says about who Cooper was at that age he's committing this crime? That's a great Let's question. Let's say he's 35 to 50. What does that say about this person? Again, like almost everything in this tale, you could take that and and run with it in about 14 different directions, right? I mean, you know, is there a, a guy that, you know, has had been felt in his mind that he had been wronged by the airline, you know, specific airline company or the airline industry and was seeking revenge? Was there a this guy that was nothing more than a, you know, than a thrill seeker? Was there a guy that, you know, was desperate and, you know, you know, needed money? And the only way that, you know, he wasn't going to, you know, he didn't have the, the gumption to, you know, put his, his life on the line in terms of walking into a bank and robbing it, but was smart enough to figure out, well, I could, you know, I could come up with the money that I need in a, in a slightly different way. Because again, there were, you know, there were documented cases of people hijacking airplanes, but none, none domestically, none domestically in the United States. So it wasn't like there was, you know, he was a copycat skyjacker. He, you know, I mean, that, that kind of had to come to him um, by some, by some means other than, well, this guy had done it, so I'm going to do it too. You know what I mean? So there had to be some kind of creativity involved in his mindset. And so, again, you know, I'm sure that, and as you've talked to, you know, people that have an insight into the human psyche and into the human mind a lot more than I have, but I had to just use my imagination and figure that this was a, a kid that, that grew up, gained confidence, was able to you know, pull off some, some minor little heists, had some tutelage and a, a good team around him and, you know, decided that uh, what he was going to do with his life was take things from people and without hurting them. And then his, his whole, my character's whole life was, was, you know, kind of a, a fraud because the way that the son discovers that his father was D.B. Cooper was because he runs across a bunch of magazines that D.B. Cooper, after the after these heists had become, in my book, had become a, a travel writer, a, you know, critic, a food critic and travel writer and critic. And the son, through various means, finds out that that whole, all of that was a sham. So, you know, my guy is pretty much a, you know, like I said, a you know, a con man who spent his whole life living a lie. So, uh, you know, I, could that be what D.B. Cooper was all about? I you know, Clearly, I thought so, because that's how I wrote the story. Do you think D.B. Cooper's bomb was real? No. Why not? Um, because, again, to go back to my interpretation or who I want D.B. Cooper to be, because if it was real, there would have been a chance that it would have gone off. And I don't think that he was the kind of guy that just willy-nilly, randomly killed people that came across his path. I think that he was, again, clever enough to devise something that looked real enough to accomplish 
what he wanted to accomplish, but it was never the kind of thing that would cause mass destruction or loss of life because my guy, my DB Cooper wasn't that kind of guy. I agree with you, Keith. What do you think it would take to actually solve this case? Gosh. I I mean, I I can't imagine that what it would take hasn't already been undertaken by the best law enforcement people in the world. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the only, he, he, he can't, could he have not survived the jump, but then have no physical evidence of any kind of a body or, you know, remains? Um, I, I guess that's possible with, with, time and wildlife and and everything else you know but then where's the money they found you know some of the money a small a small chunk of the money and in my you know and I don't want to give away the whole book but you know in my telling that was on purpose that was well we need to lay a little groundwork that uh, to kind of put off the, the bloodhounds, you know, give them a little bit of a different scent. So that, you know, the the leaving of that amount of money was was on purpose, where they left it and why they left it um, in my, you know, in my fictional account of the story. I, God, there are so there are so many, there's so many possibilities. Again, he didn't survive it. He had, you know, inside help somewhere along the way that got him out of there and and helped conceal his identity or you know there was could there have possibly been you know law enforcement involved that helped you know kind of almost solve the case but not quite solve the case and and again as we talked about in the beginning of our chat this this is the beauty of the whole story is that you can take it any direction your mind and your imagination wants to take it to me that's you know that is if that isn't the definition of a folk hero or a folk tale, then I don't know what is because there are you can come up with dozens of explanations and figure out a way to make all of them sound plausible, which I love, which is what I love about the whole the whole story. Do you think the actual story is way less interesting than <laughs> what everyone has dreamed up in their mind? Don't you think it has to be? I sure hope not. I my, know, my right? My worst fear, though, is that the case gets solved through DNA somehow, but we don't get to know the story. So my worst fear is that we find out that it was Kevin Drexler committed this crime. We don't know how or why, but we know for sure it was him. That would just kill me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you just you want to have... You just, I mean, the the romantic, you know, and and again, like we've talked about, the fact that nobody nobody got hurt just adds that that wonderful layer to it that you know that that you can romanticize this. If he had killed somebody, or you know, along the course of the way, or you know, you find out later in life that he is a person that did perpetrate some other heinous crime. You know, all the romance goes out of the story, and that would be a darn shame. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. If he was sitting, uh, or if he was executed for some other crime, 
a few years after this, then yeah, that totally kills the whole story for me. It's just great. And I love the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time on, on Twitter, but um, every, every once in a while, like it seems like once every couple of weeks, there's somebody chimes in about, you know, whatever happened to DB Cooper. And so it's, you know, that, that also 40, you know, 40 years down the road. And, and it's, you know, you, I would love to think that 40 years from now, there's somebody saying, you know, I ran across this story about a guy who jumped out of an airplane and got away with it. And wow, isn't that cool? And does anybody know anything about this D.B. Cooper character? I mean, to me, that would be just icing on the cake that, you know, even with the way that technology has improved and DNA testing and everything that's come along in law enforcement over the course of those four decades that they still, you know, my hope is that four decades from now that they still don't know who he is because that would just, that would be awesome. Oh, you want it to remain unsolved. Right. Do you think that he followed all the news stories that he watched the unsolved mysteries episode that he was in that he clipped out articles from the newspaper and read them with a big smile on his face Uh, i could see that happening uh sure i mean part of me could see that happening but also part of me wonders if he would be if he had if he would have gotten away with it for as long as he got away with it leaving that potentially that kind of a trail i don't you know again i'm just this is spitballing right now if he cut out you know articles about himself um you know would he what read it and then immediately burn it so that it wasn't you know discovered by you know uh somebody who stopped by his house or something like that i don't know um in in what became the end of uh db cooper in big flies you know he kind of as he ages, has a bit of a, you know, a come to Jesus moment and decides that, you know, he needs, he needs to come clean and he needs to, uh, to tell his only child that, um, you know, this is kind of who he was and what he did. I won't, again, give away what happens in the book, but, you know, that, that kind of self-discovery leads to, something fairly impactful in the book but you know i i don't know if he was you know i i I, again as the the romanticist in me would like to think that he just kind of got away with it and you know in my mind maybe got away with a couple of these other heists and didn't gloat about the fact or didn't want to read about his you know exploits or how, how somebody else might have uh perceived what kind of person he was or or what he, you know, what he was all about. Yeah, that's true. I guess it stayed unsolved because he wasn't the kind of guy who was at the bar saying, hey, have you ever heard about D.B. Cooper? Right. Because if it was me, I would be introducing <laughs> myself that way every time. You know that unsolved crime right. about D.B. Cooper hijacking the plane? It that wasn't me. me. Wink, wink. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's just, that's. Uh, I, and I keep going back to it in our discussion, but it's just such a it's just such a wonderful mystery to be able to to be able to have have stayed un unnoticed or un you know uncaptured. I'm not even sure that's a word for all this time, and 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 have you know as you have documented you know throughout the course of your 
podcasts that so many different theories and and uh, what is it up to you know almost 10 folks that that other people have said you know this was him i'm pretty darn sure that this was him you know that's that only adds to the to the mystery and to the to the whole you know intrigue about the whole story oh and the confessions yeah dozens of people have confessed i personally have interviewed three people whose father told them that they were db cooper and you didn't believe any of them i believe all of them (laughs) that i really do because you know maybe their dad told them a lie maybe he just wanted his life was boring and he didn't accomplish anything and so Towards the end of his life, he wanted his kids to believe that he was a cool guy and did something cool and interesting. Yeah. So that's very possible. It's also possible that they they were. I mean, it, it's totally possible. I mean, none of them can really be disproven, right? Yeah. There isn't a lot of information on there. And how am I going to disprove something that happened 50 years ago? You can't. It's tough. Yeah. That's an again. I mean, there's so... Like we're talking about that there's so much room to be left up for the imagination with this, that it allows you to fill in your dad, your grandpa, your uncle, the neighbor you had in 1995 could have been D.B. Cooper. Yeah. You only have to meet a couple of qualifications really to be considered a suspect even. That's true. And that's, again, that's just the beauty of it. And even that, you know, like the sketch, which is, you know, become iconic, you know, that, that sketch of the face of, you know, of D.B. Cooper. And you think that how unreliable historically eyewitness testimony is, um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's become this, this is what this guy looked like kind of story which i don't doubt i mean i think they probably had great great artists and and you know the folks that described him probably did a better than decent job of you know describing his features but you know the fact that that sketch has been out there for as long as it's been out there and still allowed a number of theories to be spawned from that one sketch to me is again just talks about the the genius of, of the whole myth i mean it's just it's so amazing do you think this was something that was crazy planned out and orchestrated by a team of people or do you think it was one wild guy who had an idea and then mostly got lucky along the way yeah i think that you know my my take on it was obviously in big flies was that he wasn't alone he didn't operate alone he had he had help that's not to say that it was more than a handful of people, I, I find it a little, you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm racking my brain, I find it a little hard to imagine that this was, this was a solo effort. And, I, you know, maybe I say that because, you know, my background in my, you know, in my career, um, it was always, you know, a team of people that got things accomplished. And maybe I'm approaching it because I'm inherently, you know, inclined to, you know, believe that the best things or the most, you know, creative things that get done, get done by, you know, a team of people, whether it's, you know, three or five or, you know, in my case, producing golf tournaments, you know, it was, it was, you know, between 75 and 100 people that it took to, to put a golf tournament on TV 
every week. So I, I, I tend to, you know, my, my imagination takes me into the realm of he wasn't alone, but it, it also, um, to, for it to, again, to have been a successful and be successful for so long, that number of people that were in on his team or part of his team had to be fairly small because they all had to be, you know, they all had to be able to keep their mouth shut. Exactly. I pretty much agree with everything you said there. I think it would be tough to pull this off alone, but that, that old saying, the only way two people can keep a secret is if one of them is dead. Yeah. You know, I think that holds true for a lot of conspiracy theory. Like the more people required for it to be a secret, the less likely it is to be true. Yep. I agree with that. So I don't know if there was five people involved in this, you would think in 50 years, one of them would come forward. But have they come forward? And so many people have come forward and confessed that it's tough to determine what's true and what's not. Uh, that's a great point. And that could be the secret to the whole thing. You know, that that um, it took just because he wasn't found right away or caught right away, that over the years, because, you know, so many people opined, or as you said, confessed uh, to the crime, opined about it or confessed to it, that all of a sudden that muddies the waters so much that could there be somebody in that that's telling the truth uh, i i don't see why not but at the same time well that guy said he did it or that person said it was his father so why am i going to believe you more than i believe any of them because we still haven't found him <laughs> right does having point. so many suspects hurt the case yeah and the passage of time you know, because it does get romanticized. Oh, yeah. And the the angle on everything can change as well over time. Do you think he spent the money? I, I think that the money was invested. <laughs> Again, the without, money was invested. without, uh, without giving away a, a, a lot of what happens in Big Flies. Um, because I, I honestly, as I, as I wrote the book, I had to believe that what I was writing could have happened, right? Because if I didn't, if I didn't have that conviction, then the words would, in you know, in my opinion, as a writer, the words would ring hollow or wouldn't come across as uh, you know believable enough for somebody like you who's reading the book to say, yeah, okay, maybe. So I had to when I wrote Big Flies, I had to become fully invested in the belief that what I was writing not only could have happened, but is what happened. If you know, if you know what I mean. So I think Definitely. that, uh, I think that he, he and his mentor, you know, used the money, invested the money in some other things and which eventually, uh, brought him more riches than he would have had by just sticking with the original couple hundred thousand dollars that he jumped out of the plane with if the money's invested <laughs> let's say i i bought a beach house with it then i pass away and give the beach house to my son and it comes out that i'm db cooper can the fbi take the beach house away from my son can somebody sue my estate 
because I invested the money? You know what? I probably. I mean, right? I'm guessing the FBI could probably do pretty much anything they want. <laughs> they want. Um, that's why in my telling of the story, it's not they didn't they didn't take the money and turn around and buy you know a cabin in the woods. They basically you know through other connections laundered the money into you know so all of a sudden it was spread out over you know out over the you know into the wind but what they did with certain pieces of that laundered money came back tenfold in terms of you know what what they got in return so um and again i i write this with with people having to take a certain amount of it with a grain of salt because I have no idea how laundering money works. <laughs> only, you know, only <laughs> what I read and only what I researched, but you know, to me that was plausible. So like you say, if you take the, you know, all of a sudden there is a paper trail. If you take $150,000 and buy something with it, you know, there is a history there. And to me, this guy or the folks with whom he was teamed up uh, were smart enough to know that they weren't going to leave any kind of a paper trail behind with the money that was taken. Yeah. And I mean, the only money that was found only adds more questions than it provides answers. Yep. Right. Which is to be another, which is another, the, the beauty of the whole thing. And I, you know, you wonder, you know, if, if, if that was coincidental or if that was done that way, you know, on purpose, I don't, I don't know. It's all, it's all up to everybody's and anybody's imagination. So, you know, there could be, and as you said, there have been, you know, other, um, uh, um, a number of other takes on this story and, you know, nobody knows for sure. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows for sure. Unless one of the people writing the stories or telling the stories was actually the man himself. And that hasn't come out. So. Have you ever seen Max Gunther's book, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened? I, you know, I didn't, I don't have it. And I, I, I think I just, you know, as I was researching Big Flies, I kind of, you know, wanted to take a look and see what some other folks had written. So excerpts maybe, but no, I haven't. Is it one I should, should grab? I don't know. I would say yes, but it's interesting. That's the only book that's written where it's telling the story of what really happened. Okay. But the author makes the point that he's getting this story secondhand and he verified as much as he could, but he's still not certain if it's true or not. Huh. And he didn't present it as fiction. And Max Gunther was a pretty well-respected author. And in 1985, that probably meant a little bit more than it does now, but yeah, it's interesting. It yeah. I want to, I want to read it. But although in the uh, D.B. Cooper community, not a lot of people put much weight in that book. Is that Only right? a handful. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure why. It's an interesting book, but it just seems to have been discredited. There is a lot of filler and fiction in there huh. also for details of the story that he didn't have. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I hope I made it clear that I, I the only thing I know for sure is that it happened and that I was in Reno at the time when the plane landed. Everything else is pure imagination on my part. And, um, you know, I don't profess in anything that I, that I talk about when I talk about big flies or, 
or post on social media. I never profess that I, I know a lick about what actually happened because I don't. And, um, uh, you know, I, I wonder, is there in your in your discussions, is there a like, you know, not, not, I'm not sure consensus is the right word, but have you come to to find that in the D.B. Cooper community, is there, you know, kind of one theory that people lean toward more than any other? Oh, hell no. <laughs> there is no consensus on anything. There's no consensus on where the plane was in the air. Hmm. There is no consensus on where he jumped out of the plane. There's no consensus on if he survived the jump. Yeah. Uh, th- there's just no agreeing on anything. I guess surviving the jump would be the one I think most people agree on. Although it's funny that the FBI tends to lean towards he died in the jump. Um, But that story is much less interesting if he just doesn't pull a shoe and plummets to his death. Yeah, and I wonder if they they want to espouse that theory because it makes their job easier. Like, well, you couldn't find the guy in 40 years. So of course you're going to say that he didn't survive, you know? Yeah, and I guess if your your organization prides themselves on finding people, right. and you had forty five years <laughs> to find this guy, and you didn't, then I guess if you're going to make a public statement, say he he's probably dead because right? we looked for forty five years right. and didn't find him. But it's crazy how many people are are working on this themselves. I mean, if you go on the forums, there's there's probably a dozen people who post every single day. Really? About this. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and maybe 30 people who regularly post and, and read the forums. So that's one thing that made me more fascinated in this case and made me start the show, really, is that there is this community of people trying to solve this case. And most of those people are super interesting. That's great. Like yourself. I mean, you're not trying to solve the case like some of the others, but I I didn't know that you were actually there in Reno. Yeah. That is wild. I'm very jealous of that. (laughs) But again, I don't think I could have, I don't think that the, the thought of, I don't think I would have had the thought of telling the tale the way I told it in Big Fly's. I wouldn't have had the thought to do that had I not, you know, had some personal um, connection to the story. As as interested as I may have been in the story, hearing about it or reading about it from afar, the fact that, you know, it had a, you know, there was something, you know, that actually happened in my life that related to the case, I think was the impetus that, you know, clicked in my brain that said, well, let's, you know, let's write a fictional account of what might have happened because, you know, I had that, that starting point. If you were going to make a movie out of your book, (laughs) who would play Leland and who would play Chester? Yeah. Where did those names come from? Leland and Chester? (laughs) You know, it's funny because I, you know, when I first wrote, was writing it, I had Chester, Chester, Daniel, David can't just, you know, kind of came to me. I don't know how, why, or, uh, you know, when, but, and I was going to have the son, the son's name, which turned out to be Leland, which was what my mother called my father. My dad's name was Lee. And my mom called, 
called my dad Leland um, all the time. But originally, the son, Leland, was going to be Lester. So I had Chester and Lester. And as I was writing this, and a couple of my early beta readers were reading it, and they said, this is way too confusing. <laughs> I can't. And I think there's even, I, say, I mentioned that we self-published this. I think there's a couple of maybe once or twice in the manuscript, in the book, where I didn't change Lester to Leland. So there's like, I had a friend of mine say, you know, it's like, who's Lester? I'm reading on page 79. And all of a sudden, there's this Lester character. And I, I thought, oh, boy, I forgot, you know, I didn't, when I went through the process, <laughs> I, I didn't change that. Anyway, so I, these people were like, you can't have one guy named Chester and one guy named Lester, that's not going to work. So I changed it to Leland. But um, it's funny, you ask about who would play them in a movie, because my wife and my my wife's parents, um, when we first, when the first, the book first came out, we, of course, we fantasized about, like, this would be a really kind of a fun movie. And wouldn't it be fun? And we'd play the game of, you know, who would play, you know, who would play Chester and who would play Leland and, and who would play, you know, the, the old man who, who owns the, the convenience store. And, uh, um, you know, I could never, I, I think I wrote down a list of actors and actresses' names somewhere along the way, and it's probably somewhere here in my office. But um, you know, you you run to you run to uh, you know folks like you know Ben Affleck or or you know Chris Hemsworth or so you know, and then you think, well, you you can't have that somebody that recognizable because then all people look at on the on the movie screen is well, that's Ben Affleck or <laughs> you know so. I don't know. I don't know who I would. Uh, I hope someday to have um, that dilemma, because as I sit here and fantasize about where my life might take me in in future years, one of the places that that I would love to to find myself is sitting in a movie theater and have the up on the screen the words that say "based on the novel by Keith Hirschland." I think that would kind of be pretty cool. So <laughs> um, that would be badass, right? I mean, wouldn't that be fun? But that'd be so great. I don't know. Do you do you see anybody? Did you see anybody when you were reading it? You know, I'll take any suggestions at this point. How about uh, John Hamm? Love it. There was that whole Mad Men was going to end that way, which yeah. was ridiculous. Right? Didn't make any sense, but he does kind of look like DB Cooper. Yeah, he could pull it off. That'd be fun. Or, you know, if the movie comes out a few years from now, uh, maybe I'll play it for yeah, you. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> All right, Keith. Is there anything we haven't covered yet? No, this has been a blast. I really appreciate you spending so much time. And, and I love just hashing out, telling the story. And, and you know, I, I have a we have three we have three kids. Uh, the youngest is, you know, going to be 26, you know, and I would love for you know, for, for all of them to, you know, to kind of dig their teeth into, into, you know, this, this American folktale, because, you know, I think it's just one of the most compelling real life stories. You can't make this stuff up stories um, that's ever come down the pike. So I love the fact that, you know, you were able to talk about it for, you know, when you and I have talked about it for more than an hour and we could keep going a lot longer than that. So you know, that's just... Oh, I've done like 45 hours on the subject <laughs> on my show. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it's the only unsolved hijacking of an airplane in the world. 
Yeah. How is that not a great story? It, it is a great story. And, and there's just no way this could happen today. Nope. You couldn't even get on the plane without being photographed 900 yep. times. Yeah, that's true. Well, I appreciate you keeping it alive. I mean, you know, you, I will, I will do everything I can do to, to just to, to, to pump out information about, you know, the things that you're talking about, because I just find it so fascinating. And I appreciate, I appreciate you continuing to, to tell the tale. Well, I appreciate you keeping it alive as well. Everyone should go check out your book, Big Flies, and then also, if uh, you want to read why Keith was fired from the Golf <laughs> Channel, uh, pick up Cover Me, Boys. I'm going in. I actually have that. You sent me a copy of that, which I appreciate. So now I'm yeah. I'm very excited to read that. Oh, and, good. Uh, I suspect, like most people, I have some extra time on my hands yeah, the next right. few weeks. Yeah, so. let's hope that, that we come through this sooner rather than later. Yeah, so we can all sit in a the movie theater. And see on the screen, based on the novel by Keith Hirschland. Gosh, that would be amazing. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. All right. If people want to uh, check you out or check out your work, where can they find you? Uh, probably the easiest place is uh, KeithHirschland.com. K-E-I-T-H-H-I-R-S-H-L-A-N-D.com. All four of the books are there. Also, my, uh, I kind of, every once in a while... I uh, write a blog about sports, TV, sports production stuff. So uh, you can find me there. I'm on Twitter at KHH author and also on Instagram at the same address. And that's about it. Well, it's a good thing you aren't in the sports broadcasting business right now. Right. right? No, <laughs> I have a lot of friends who are suffering right now. Oh, I'm sure. I. This is the first time there's been no sports. All right, Keith. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Head on over to KeithHirschland.com and make sure you pick up a copy of his book, Big Flies. While you're there, grab his memoir, Cover Me, Boys. I'm going in so you can find out, like me, why he was let go from the Golf Channel. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. Do you know who D.B. Cooper was or have a guest suggestion for us? Hit us up. You can find us on Instagram at The Cooper Vortex, Facebook, we are The Cooper Vortex, Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd be willing to leave us a review wherever you listen to this, that would be great. Thank you to Keith Hirschland for coming on the show. Thank you to Russell Colbert, the handsome man behind the curtain. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.